This is the Voices in Health Law podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Andy Dimitrio. I'm a senior counsel in the law firm of Hush Blackwell in Los Angeles, California. I'm a former chair of the Health Law Section and have served on the Board of Governors of the, the American Bar Association. I'm Pleased to be joined today by Dan Avance, who is a senior counsel in the Hush Blackwell firm based in Chicago. Dan is a very experienced lawyer in helping health systems in a variety of different contexts, but in particular and relevant to today's topic, he has been an expert on the so-called 340B drug purchasing program for many, many years, was one of the early experts in this field. This uh, program today is actually a preview of a session that will be held at the upcoming Washington Health Law Summit sponsored by the Health Law Section, December 12th and 13th. 13th in Washington, D.C. People who are interested in that program, there's still an opportunity to register by going to ambar.org slash WHS 2022. And we encourage your participation in this important policy program. In today's session, we're going to be discussing the implications of the, the so-called drug purchasing program under uh, Section 340B of the Public Health Act which was the subject of a very recent decision by the United States Supreme Court, which will significantly impact the program going forward. And I'll be in conversation with Dan about some of the background leading to that case, as well as its implications going forward. Before we start, I would like to put out a disclosure that none of the opinions that will be expressed on this podcast today are opinions of the American Bar Association or of the Hush Blackwell Law Firm and are purely the views of the individual presenters on this program. With that, welcome, Dan. Uh, glad to have you participate in the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. Sure. Now, the 340B program has been around essentially since the Clinton administration, and it's a program where hospitals that are in, you know, historically underserved medical communities or areas of, of low income are able to purchase drugs from the big pharma companies at a substantial discount from uh, the retail prices or the prices charged to other hospitals. With that background, why don't you describe a little bit what happened during the Trump administration with regard to some rules that they made? affecting the 340B hospitals? Yeah, absolutely. So it actually started back in 2018. HHS through CMS unilaterally reduced reimbursement for providers who build Medicare through the 340B program. It did not impact all of the providers who qualified for the programs. They primarily focused on the larger general acute care hospitals. Uh, they're referred to as DISH hospitals, disproportionate chair hospitals under the 340B regulations. And they reduced the overall reimbursement for those drugs by almost 30%. So for many uh, safety net hospitals who rely on the 340B program to keep their doors open, they saw millions of dollars of loss of increased costs, essentially, because they were no longer getting full reimbursement from Medicare for those drugs that were being administered to their patients. 
As a result of that rulemaking in 2018, several different hospitals, health systems, the American Hospital Association, and other parties came together and filed suit against HHS for improper rulemaking. And after several years of litigation, it culminated with the Supreme Court case that we we got a ruling on this past summer. Yeah, well, now, before we get to the case itself, so I gather, and maybe you could clarify this, that the rationale of HHS in, in adopting this rule was that the 340B hospitals are getting a substantial discount on the pharmaceutical drugs, and yet they were reimbursed by Medicare as though they had paid the full price that they would have paid in the absence of 340B. So at least what HHS might have been thinking is we're trying to protect the federal fisc uh, and reduce Medicare expenditures by offsetting the degree of the discounts. Is that a fair statement of what what the government's position was? Yeah, I would say that's um, exactly correct. Uh, They actually, many states had actually utilized this strategy prior to Medicare doing so. Many states had implemented a similar strategy wherein if any provider was submitting, depending on the state, claims to fee-for-service Medicaid and in some states Medicaid managed care, they were required to append a modifier onto those claims, which would then trigger reduced reimbursement with the intent of reducing Medicaid spend in the state so that the state could then use those savings uh, to better serve its patient population. So essentially what they were doing was they were taking, taking the power and control away from the provider and putting it on themselves, the state, to decide how to use those savings. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were most providers, and I would agree, felt that they were in a better position to know how to best care for their patient population and didn't want those savings to be controlled by the state. Notwithstanding, a lot of those programs continue today, and Medicare was doing um, essentially the same thing. So they now had this, they had they take the savings that were going to providers, and instead of the providers being able to utilize them, it's now upon Medicare and CMS to decide how those savings should be utilized. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously, there have been some deleterious effects on these hospitals, which are, in many cases, safety net hospitals and hospitals that operate on extremely thin margins anyway. It seems that, you know, the, the, the motivation behind this lawsuit was really to save some of these hospitals from failing. Is that fair? Absolutely. There are there are multiple hospitals that had multi-million dollar annual hits to their bottom line. Um, it, it truly did force some providers to shut down service lines to change the way that they were providing care because they no longer had the reimbursement necessary to fund some of the more specialized services in rural communities. And because they are, by definition, in order to be eligible for the program, safety net providers who serve a disproportionately large share of underinsured, uninsured patients and Medicaid patients as well. So with that background, uh, why don't you talk now about what happened at the Supreme Court? Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, as I mentioned, there had been uh, ongoing litigation for several years. Essentially, it came down to the contention that CMS did not engage in proper rulemaking when it unilaterally reduced the reimbursement for those 340B drugs under the Medicare program. And so the challenge was that because they didn't go through proper rulemaking channels, 
it was an invalid reduction and they should re not only reinstate full reimbursement, but also find a way to rectify the situation that had been going on for four plus years. So the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the rulemaking was improper in this situation. It was sent down to the lower courts for review. And then in September, the federal district court ruled that effective immediately, I think this date was September 28th, was that all 340B covered entities who were not receiving full reimbursement had to start receiving full reimbursement effective immediately. So they've started receiving full reimbursement since late September and will continue to do so through at least 2023. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the Supreme Court's reasoning too, because there was a way, it seems to me, that CMS could have imposed this type of reduction based on certain survey processes and determination of actual value paid, but they didn't do that. And the court kind of concluded that what they had effectively done was discriminated against the 340B hospitals favoring the others. So uh, let's talk a little bit about why it is that CMS would have, you know, I mean, is it just laziness that they didn't want to do the surveys or, you know, uh, how did they get to where they got? I mean, if I'm speculating, I would say the, the biggest reason is they didn't have the ability to identify the proper claims data to even go through the process of conducting that analysis. From there, from Medicare's and any other payer's perspective, there is no way to distinguish between what is a 340B drug claim and what is not. They're all billing, being billed as usual and customary. Now, there are some high-level ways they could have looked at it. They could have looked at all outpatient drug claims because those are, generally speaking, the claims that are eligible for the program. But for a variety of different reasons, that data would have a very high margin of error. Therefore, they, I think I would speculate again that that's why they went ahead with the modeling their program off of what the states had been doing. And in doing so, did require that 340B covered entities append a modifier on their claims data moving mm -hmm. forward. So now, going back to 2018, they do have identifiable drug claim data that can be tied back to those 340B drugs. As a result, I wouldn't be surprised if, as we look ahead to the 2024 rulemaking process through the outpatient perspective payment system, that we see something in there that is more aligned with the proper rulemaking channels for Medicare. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, though, that the states have done similar things with regard to their Medicaid programs. Have those been subject to challenge, and, and are they, uh, you know, at, at jeopardy because of this Supreme Court decision? They have been subject to scrutiny over the years. However, most of them have been around for so long that a lot of that scrutiny occurred prior to the expansion of the program um, in 2011 through the Affordable Care Act. So when providers were joining the program, they were already aware of that procedure that was in place at the states. And their rulemaking is, you know, generally speaking about all the states, have gone through the proper channels. Uh, there have been some specific cases. Missouri ran into some issues over the last couple of years as they tried to implement their own kind of cost-sharing uh, procedures because they had not gone through the proper channels. So there have been some challenges like that over the years, but most states that have implemented to this point have 
now gone through those proper channels. And I'm not, I don't see how the Supreme Court case would change that because it was, it was really focused on the procedural rulemaking process that I, I don't see it impacting um, any state in particular. Well, and it seems that that what's underlying all of this, aside from the question of trying to, you know, find ways to keep these hospitals alive, is really what are the expectations uh, of the hospitals going forward in terms of reimbursements that they can plan accordingly? And, and what the federal government did was so disruptive of that type of advanced planning. And maybe, you know, in the case of the states, because some of these have been in place for a while, people have sort of baked that in and they know that they're going to have a reduced reimbursement if they get the benefit of the discount. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And the way that the Medicare reimbursement came out was through the outpatient prospective payment system with their final rule coming out in November. In fact, the 2023 rule just came out uh, last week and we can talk about that Mm -hmm. in a minute. But when they released the 2018 rule to start reducing reimbursement effective the following January. Most hospitals had their budgets all done. Um, Everything had been submitted. And now they were getting millions of dollars cut from the bottom line and had no, no way to recover from that. And it just, it was a, like you said, it was a big shock to the system. Right. Well, let's, you've created a great segue. Let's talk about what the future looks like. And as you mentioned, there's a brand new regulation out now. And beyond that, what should hospitals be looking to do in response to the changing environment? Yep. So the proposed rule came out over the summer, um, as it usually does. And it, of course, uh, impacts all outpatient reimbursement for Medicare. But one component of it was with respect to the 340B program. The proposed rule came out just a few weeks after the Supreme Court case. The, in the proposed rule, CMS acknowledged the Supreme Court case said effective January 1st, all 340B reimbursement would go back to full reimbursement and at the same time solicited feedback through comments about how they should rectify the historical underpayment to those 340B covered entities. We we submitted comments, many different providers across the country submitted comments about different strategies of how CMS may consider rectifying that underpayment. But ultimately when the final rule came out, they stated that there was no clear consensus on the best way to determine how to uh, remediate that issue and therefore would consider it during calendar year 2023 and incorporate it into the final rule, the proposed rule and the final rule for 2024. So we're still a ways away from knowing what the historical remedy is going to be for those underpayments. Notwithstanding, as I briefly mentioned before, uh, we have the federal district court case that came out in September that effective immediately made required CMS to go back to full reimbursement for those 340B drugs. So all hospitals should now be receiving full reimbursement under Medicare. I, one action item that covered entities should look into is talking with your finance department, your claims department, make sure that you're seeing Medicare full reimbursement for those claims. If you're not, sorry. I was gonna say, is there any prospect that that district court opinion is going to be uh, appealed at this point by the government or are they acquiesced 
in that decision? So as I briefly mentioned before, the federal district court uh, was required to implement the Supreme Court ruling and what they stated was that effective immediately in late September that Medicare must begin reimbursing covered entities at the full usual and customary reimbursement rate for 340B drugs. Therefore, effective now through the end of the year and then continuing in January, those, those providers should be receiving full Medicare reimbursement. And their, their revenue department should be confirming that. And uh, what if, for example, they don't receive what they think they're entitled to? What's the process there? Yeah, so if upon review uh, with the claims department, finance department, anybody does find that they're not receiving full reimbursement for those drug claims, uh, you should contact your MAC, your Medicare administrative contractor, notify them of the underpayment and let them know that you should be receiving full reimbursement. We did have some issues with it in late September and early October that required us to essentially appeal those claims and have them resubmitted. And we didn't have any issue getting any um, full reimbursement for any clients, but it is something that folks should be mindful of. And so there is no prospect at this point that that district court decision is going to be appealed. The government more or less acquiesced in, in that decision. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's much, if any, legal basis at this point in time for them to appeal that uh, federal district court case. It was more or less implementing the Supreme Court's rule uh, and I, I don't I don't see it being uh, appealed at this point. Okay, so going forward, it sounds like there's still going to be um, some room for comment on further rules coming out of CMS about how to accomplish the refunds, even though they're now paying full payment forward, they've got to deal with the three-year, four-year gap. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. What should clients be and, and companies out there be doing as part of that, that process? I would say, especially now that we're working our way through the midterm elections, um, make sure that your advocacy and lobbying groups um, internally and in with any uh, hospital organizations that you're a part of, make sure that's a talking point on the list. So when you're talking to your representative, your congressional reps, that they're aware of the continued importance of the 340B program and being mindful of the fact that there is going to need to be some additional rulemaking from CMS to rectify uh, that historical underpayment that I referenced. On top of that, the 340B program does continue to be a hot button issue uh, from a political perspective. It, it lost a little bit of steam uh, about two years ago, and it hasn't. We saw a lot of bills proposed in 2019 leading up to the pandemic. But since then, politically and legislatively, discussions have cooled but it's still a program that would benefit greatly from having new regulatory support and review. And so I, I have a feeling that over the next year or two, it's going to rise back up again as an issue that folks are talking about. So just making sure, again, that your advocacy team, your lobbyists are aware of the 340B program, that it continues to be one of the talking points that they're bringing up with your congressional representatives 
and that they're aware of the fact that CMS has to come up with a way to pay hundreds of millions of dollars back to these hospitals from almost four years of underpayment. And it's, it, Medicare doesn't have hundreds of millions of dollars sitting around to uh, shell out. So they're going to have to come up with something creative, that's for sure. Well, Dan, this has been a, a very thoughtful discussion of, a, of an issue that is important to an awful lot of hospitals. And I want to thank you for your time today, and we'll look forward to the presentation that you're going to make in, in Washington next month. Uh, we've been listening to Dan Avance of Hush Blackwell talking about recent developments in the 340B drug program and commenting on the recent Supreme Court decision, uh, which caused the uh, government to have to reimburse disproportionate share and other safety net hospitals for substantial amounts of reduced reimbursement that they've received since 2018 and 2022. Uh, we look forward to Dan's further comments at the Washington Summit next month in a panel discussing this issue in more depth. On behalf of the ABA Voices in Health Law podcast, this is Andy Demetrio, your host, and we hope you will tune in for future editions of Voices in Health Law. The Health Law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and BMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.